1: University Press books. So I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jenny Smith about her new book, Overloaded, how every aspect of your life is influenced by your brain chemicals. This mind-bending, eye-opening book provides readers with an enjoyable route through the remarkable world of neurotransmitters, the chemicals inside each of us that touch every aspect of our lives. Author Jenny Smith gets to the bottom of exactly what these tiny molecules do. Well, Jenny, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of a recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by telling us how has it influenced you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, in terms of writing the book, it wasn't a huge impact on that because that was something that I do from home anyway. Uh, But then the book promotion has been completely different to what I expected. So I was, um, I was sort of tentatively booked in to have a book launch event at the RI in London. And I was planning on going to a bunch of festivals and doing book talks and things. Um, and some of them were moved online. So I did do an online launch event for the RI. Um, but some of them haven't been able to move online. And Online events are great um, in many ways, but it's also not quite the same as being able to really kind of, you know, invite all your friends to the launch of your first book and, and feel like you're really celebrating it. So that that was a bit strange. Um, I also, as well as the uh, writing and stuff that I do for grown-ups, I do a lot of shows and workshops at schools um, and uh, family events for young people to help them understand their brains as well with my organisation Braintastic Science. So, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had to convert as many of our shows as possible to work remotely, to work online. um, And they are very interactive. We have lots of demos where we get kids up on stage, get them, you know, doing things with bits of kit and um, trying out different illusions and pretending to be neurons and all sorts of things. So it was quite a job to kind of convert as much of that as possible to work remotely and online. And even now events are some events are starting to go back to normal, but others are doing kind of hybrid things. So it feels like almost every event we have to kind of work out from scratch how to do things for the best. But it's been quite, quite interesting. And I think there have definitely been some benefits to events moving online in terms of accessibility. Um, obviously, you do need to have access to the internet, but it means that wherever people are in the world, they are able to... Go to these events. Um, and I think for people with disabilities or who are carers or perhaps don't have the time or money to travel to science festivals and things, I think it has made them in some ways more accessible. So I do hope we're able to keep some of that positive thing that has come out of this
0: pandemic. So you've mentioned that you work with brains. So can you tell <laughs> us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, I. Basically, I've always been interested in science. I was one of those kids who was always asking questions, always wanting to know how things worked and why things did whatever they did. Um, and I was very lucky that I had parents who encouraged that and who tried to answer the questions when they could and helped me find out the answers when they didn't know them. So I think I knew quite early that I wanted to do something in science. Um, But I actually didn't discover neuroscience and psychology really until I went to university. Um, So I'd actually applied to university to do chemistry because of those three basic sciences that we're taught at school, biology, chemistry, physics. Chemistry was actually my favorite. So I applied to do that. Um, I ended up going to University of Cambridge and their course means that you have to take four different subjects in your first year. So I took chemistry as one of them. I took material sciences because I thought, well, that's quite similar to chemistry. You had to do maths as a third one. And then I had one space left and I was sort of umming and ahhing over what to do. And they had a course called Evolution and Behaviour, which I just thought, oh, well, sounds quite interesting. It sounds a bit different. I might get to watch some David Attenborough documentaries. I love David <laughs> Attenborough. So um, I picked that one on a bit of a whim and I enjoyed the evolution stuff, but it was that behaviour Bit of the course that really grabbed me. And it was the first time I think I'd realized that you could use rigorous scientific methods to work out why humans do what they do. And I just fell in love with that idea, with the idea that you could find out why we are the way we are and why we're different to each other and why we behave the way we do. So I um, went to my director of studies and said, actually, I'd like to change the direction of my course. Um, and I actually hadn't done biology a level, So I had to do a bit of kind of Uh, work over the summer holidays to catch up on the biology side of things. But then I moved over and did psychology, experimental psychology, neurobiology, and history and philosophy of science in my second year, and then experimental psychology in my final year when you specialised down to just one. So I was really lucky that I ended up on a course where you had to do this broad uh, base in lots of different bits of science. Because if I'd Gone to any other university. I'd have just been on a chemistry course and I might might never have discovered how fascinating brains are.
0: And what about your environment? So did you have any mentors that really inspired you along the way?
1: So my parents, particularly my mum, very early on, she was actually a microbiologist by training. Um, so she had that kind of background in science. And i I was never, I never had the idea that science was a boy thing um, because it was my mum who was the scientist and she always encouraged me to do experiments and things at home Um, I also had a wonderful science teacher in primary school who uh, ran a science club where we got to do lots of kind of extra stuff getting really hands on with things um, and we do these end of term challenges kind of problem solving engineering challenges and teams Uh, and I think though that really that early experience really contributed to kind of building this curiosity and this love of finding things out. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about giving that to as many kids as possible to give them those experiences because they really can make a difference long-term, I think.
0: And what would you say to our younger uh, listeners and early career researchers?
1: Um, I think just keep following your interests is that's what I've done. And what's got me here is that when I found something interesting, I've stuck at it. Um, And even if it gets a bit difficult, if you find what you're doing interesting, if you're curious about it, if you want to find out the answer, that will keep you going through the tough stuff. Um, So yeah, I think that would be my advice, follow your interests. And don't worry too much about thinking 10 years ahead, because 10 years ago, I wouldn't have guessed that I'd be here. Um, I've just kind of got here by following what interested me
0: at at each stage. Oh, that's an excellent advice. (laughs) Well, your your latest book is overloaded. How every aspect of your life is influenced by your brain chemicals. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it?
1: Yeah, so um, I've been kind of doing other forms of writing for quite a while. So I've contributed to a few other popular science books, the kind of highly illustrated DK ones, and I have written various articles and blogs and that kind of thing. So I kind of decided that a book was the next step, the next thing to do. Um and around that time I kind of started noticing that there were a lot of mentions of brain chemicals that started kind of popping up in in popular media and um kind of online and all of those kinds of things so you know you'd see uh, articles titled dopamine is driving social media addiction or boost your serotonin by eating these five happy foods or you know things like that and I just started thinking I know enough about the brain to know that there's no way it's that simple and it felt a bit like these chemicals were being used as kind of buzzwords, but then the articles weren't really explaining what they were, what they did, um, and they were just kind of being used to make things sound scientific without really digging into them. So I wondered if that might be quite an interesting angle to to take with... Um, with my book proposal. So I sort of, um, yeah, had this idea that it would be nice to have space to really dig into these chemicals and how they affected all these different aspects of our lives. So I was talking with uh, Sigma, who are part of Bloomsbury, my publishers, about kind of various ideas, and I pitched them that one. And they liked that idea. So uh, yeah, so I started
0: working on it excellent so your book covers ooh, a, a lot of stuff in it and as you <laughs> said as you said it's not as simple as it, as it looks so let's delve into some of this uh, science that you cover and we're going to start from the basics so what okay, are the neurotransmitters
1: Okay, so neurotransmitters are chemicals which are used in our brain to send messages. So our brain's made up of a few different types of cell, but one of them is neurons or nerve cells. And these are special cells that are built to send messages. So they've got uh, a cell body like any other cell does, and then they've got a long part called an axon, and then kind of fronds at each end called dendrites. And the axon sends electrical signals. So in the same way that when you turn on a light, electricity flows through your uh, cables in your wall and your light lights up, uh, electricity can flow along the axon and send a message. But when it reaches the end of the neuron, the signal has to get to the next neuron because it's not just one neuron connecting A to B. There are these huge networks and a signal might have to get through lots and lots of neurons to actually make something happen. So between each of the neurons, they don't actually touch. There's a little gap called a synapse. And the message has to get from the end of one neuron to the beginning of the next one. And it does that in a few different ways, but the most common in the human brain is using these chemicals called neurotransmitters. So the signal comes along the first neuron, it reaches the end, and that causes these chemicals to be released from the dendrites of that first neuron. They travel across the synapse and are detected by receptors in the edge of the second neuron, and then they change something in that second neuron. So the most common thing that can happen is that they trigger the second neuron to fire to send its electrical signal. So a signal goes along the first neuron, releases chemicals, second neuron detects those chemicals, send its electrical signal, and the message continues. And the chemical that does that in the brain is called glutamate, and that's what we call an excitatory neurotransmitter. It excites the second neuron and causes it to be more likely to send its message. There's also a chemical that does the opposite, and that's called GABA. So when the first neuron releases GABA, it makes the second neuron less likely to fire. So that one kind of damps down activity. It calms down the brain. Then there's a whole bunch of neurotransmitters that do more complicated things. They modulate the second neuron, so uh, they can cause it to be more likely or less likely to fire depending on the scenario or they can do other things they can cause longer term changes and those are the kind of neurotransmitters that you may be more likely to have heard of things like serotonin dopamine noradrenaline Um, and those are the ones i think that are probably the most interesting when it comes to behavior because although our neurons can change it takes a while for say new dendrites to grow But changes at the synapse, changes in which chemicals released, how much of it, at what rate, they can happen really quickly. So as I started to kind of dig into this topic, I started to realize that most of those kind of moment by moment changes we all experience in our mood or in our decisions or or anything like that, they're happening at that synapse and it's those chemicals that are controlling it.
0: And whereabouts are those neurotransmitters found? So you already mentioned synapses. So is it in our central nervous system, like in brain, or can it be in our arms, for example?
1: Yeah, so um, I mostly focus on the neurotransmitters in the brain, but are our- nerves in our bodies do use neurotransmitters as well. And particularly in the pain chapter, I talk a little bit more about the, what we call the peripheral nervous system, the bit that goes out to the rest of the body, because obviously that's really important when it comes to pain. Um, and they do use, uh, specific neurotransmitters as well. So there's, um, Chemicals that are related to opium, um, so things that are very similar to heroin or morphine that our body produces, and those are used in the spinal cord in the pain signaling mechanism. There's also some chemicals that are chemically similar to the active ingredient in cannabis, which are involved in the pain signaling pathway, as well as the the basic glutamate, the excitatory one as well. So yes, you do find neurotransmitters um, anywhere in the body that you have neurons or nerve signals. There's also hormones, which are chemical messengers that get carried in the blood. And I touch on a few of those, but i didn't have the space in the book to go into them in a huge amount of detail because they can do all sorts of other things. But what is slightly confusing is that some chemicals are both neurotransmitters and hormones, whereas others are just one or the other. Um, so yes, it's it depends basically where they're released. So if they're released between two neurons, we call them a neurotransmitter. If they're released into the blood and they travel in the blood and have an effect on a different part of the
0: body, then we call them a hormone. Oh, Excellent. Thank you for this distinction. It makes it Mm -hmm. so much clearer.
1: Yeah, it's one of the slightly confusing things when you see the same chemical being called a Mm. neurotransmitter in one place and a hormone in the other place. It is still the same thing. It's just being used differently by the body.
0: So could you describe some of your favorite neurotransmitters?
1: Oh, it's so hard to pick a favorite because they're all so important in so many different ways. Um, I think... Well, I have a bit of a soft spot for glutamate and GABA because they are the workhorses of the brain. Something I can't remember the exact statistic, but something like 70% of our neurons use glutamate and yet they don't get as much airtime as the serotonins and the dopamines um, and that kind of thing. Um, I think I also have a bit of a soft spot for oxytocin. Um, which is one of the hormones involved in bonding. Um, So involved in love, we might like to say. And It has had a bit of publicity as the cuddle chemical. It does actually do a few other things as well. But I think it's really interesting. And partly I like it because of the story about how it was discovered. Um, So a lot of science is kind of done by accident. And I think that's something that doesn't always get talked about. We know know, there's a few stories that people have heard, you know, Alexander Fleming discovering penicillin because he'd forgotten to wash up his lab equipment and it went mouldy. But there's more than you might expect. Um, of these kind of accidental scientific discoveries. So oxytocin was discovered to have this role in bonding because some scientists were doing a survey of the rodents that lived around the university that they were working in. And they were trapping rodents, cataloging them, and then releasing them again. And they noticed that there was a particular type of vole called a prairie vole that kept showing up in pairs. So they keep catching two of them rather than just one. And then they realized that the same pairs were appearing always with that specific partner. So they thought this was really interesting. So they started kind of tracking the voles back to their um, where they were living. And they found that they were coupled up that you, there were pairs of voles a male and a female living together in a den and raising pups together and that's really was really surprising to them because there are hardly any there aren't many mammals and i don't think there are any other rodents that are monogamous that form bonds between two individuals and stay together at least while they're raising their young So the scientists wanted to find out why these voles were monogamous, and they discovered there's another really closely related type of vole called a montane vole that isn't monogamous. So they started looking into what was different between these two types of voles. And they found that that oxytocin and a really closely related chemical called vasopressin were really important for bonding and that the prairie voles, when they uh, mated with a partner for the first time, they released loads of oxytocin and that seemed to be vital for forming these pair bonds. So what they did next, which um, seems like the kind of logical next step, was they took some oxytocin and they gave it to the montane voles, the ones that aren't monogamous, thinking that they could maybe turn them monogamous, but it didn't work. Um, And they didn't know for a while why that was until they discovered that montane voles don't have receptors for oxytocin in what's known as the reward circuits of the brain. Mm. Whereas uh, prairie voles do. So when you give a prairie vole a burst of oxytocin, which they get through mating, they learn to associate that rewarding feeling with their partner, and that drives them to want to spend more time with their partner. So a a prairie vole will choose to spend time with its partner rather than a random other vole. Whereas montane voles, because they don't have those receptors, even if you give them the chemical, it doesn't have that same effect which I think is fascinating. So it's not just about the chemicals we have in our brains. It's also about the receptors
0: and where they are in our our brains. This is brilliant. And you have to use all of these different techniques to actually find it out, isn't it? Both behavioral and then laboratory techniques.
1: Yes. And then, of course, the next question is, well, that's great. We know this about voles. Is it true when it comes to humans? Um, So humans are most of us are monogamous. Um, Whether that is imposed by society or evolution is really hard to pick apart. Um, But scientists have found that there is a gene that codes for making more of these um, oxytocin vasopressin receptors and uh, a gene variant that codes for making less of them. And that men who have less of the receptors seem to be less satisfied in their relationships and more likely to... Um, get divorced or have relationships fail. So obviously that's only a kind of statistical thing. You can't experiment on humans in quite the same way um, for obvious reasons, but that does seem to suggest that maybe there is a link there. And we do know that we have receptors for oxytocin vasopressin in our reward circuits. So it seems likely that we have some form of this kind of bonding um, and that these two chemicals are important for it.
0: And uh, oxytocin quite often is being implicated in the mother-baby bonding for humans, isn't it?
1: Yes. So that was actually where it was first discovered. Um, Oxytocin is the chemical that is released when um, someone who's pregnant goes into labor and it's involved in contracting the uterus. Uh, It's also involved in the milk letdown process um, when someone's breastfeeding. So What we think happened evolutionarily is that this chemical that did something quite mechanical in the body then sort of became co-opted to help a parent who's given birth to bond with their infant. Um, And then evolution kind of co-opted that parent-infant bonding system and turned it into a way that two adult people or um, animals could as well. And this is something we see in evolution, that it doesn't always start from scratch. Sometimes there's a system that's kind of doing something similar and evolution can just jump in and tweak it a bit. And that's a lot easier than starting from scratch. So we think that's probably how this this came
0: about. And thinking about more of the volatile chemicals, if I can put it this way. Now, what (laughs) about dopamine? How does this play in?
1: Oh, so dopamine is incredibly important for all sorts of different things. So when I first started researching the book, I thought that I would do... chapters on each chemical and kind of what it does. And then I decided actually that a better way of structuring it would be to look at different aspects of our life and the chemicals that are involved in them. So that's what I ended up doing. So I've got a chapter on love, which we've just been talking about, a chapter on decision making, one on sleep, one on hunger. Um, And as I started those, I thought, well, I'll pick out one or two chemicals that are important for this thing. um, And they'll be you know, the, the most important chemical for that chapter, and maybe some of them will come up in more than one chapter, but mostly it'll be, you know, one or two chemicals per chapter. And by the end of it, are there there's sort of maybe 10 chemicals in most of the chapters, and dopamine is in quite a lot of them not all Mm. not quite all of them but almost all of them i would say so it's involved in so many different processes it's involved in decision making it's involved in sleep it's involved in mood motivation is probably the most important um, when we come to dopamine but this idea that dopamine just does one thing and that it's it's a addictive or your your um pleasure chemical that's released when you do something your brain thinks is good and that's driving addiction is such an oversimplification um, for some reason that seems to be the message that's put out there in the media that for example this uh, it's talked about with social media a lot when you get a like that causes your dopamine to spike and that's making you addicted to getting likes. It turns out actually when you look at the studies, dopamine is less to do with reward and more to do with drive or motivation. So it pushes you towards doing something rather than rewarding you when you do do it. Um, So I talk about that quite a lot in the motivation chapter, um, the kind of really interesting, really careful studies they had to do to tease apart those two Uh, those two things but basically if you get a, a rat that doesn't have enough dopamine in its brain it will still eat tasty food if you give it the tasty food and it will still seem to enjoy it but it won't put in work to get that tasty food it will just eat bland food that it doesn't have to work for so it's it's that drive to do something to achieve a goal that dopamine seems particularly important for
0: This is really interesting that uh, when we think about our behaviors, we tend to um, think that one neurotransmitter is predominantly acting to produce this behavior. But uh, um, it looks like it's more uh, of a tandem or collaboration of uh, few transmitters at the same time.
1: Oh, totally. And different neurotransmitters can have different effects in different parts of the brain. So dopamine is also really important for movement um, when it comes to the kind of motor areas of the brain. And that's why people who have Parkinson's disease, which is characterized by the death of neurons in an area of the brain that produce a lot of the brain's dopamine. So they have chronically low levels of dopamine. They have a lot of problems with movement, they have hand tremors, they can get sort of stuck and unable to start moving. But if you give them uh, drugs to boost their dopamine levels, that can really help them. It can get them moving again. But sometimes they have side effects. And one of the side effects is that they can make people more um, kind of more driven towards certain behaviours that are maybe not good for them. So for example, uh, occasionally you get people who develop a gambling uh, habit or compulsive shopping or overeating because of these dopamine boosting drugs, because they've made them more goal directed. And if that goal is an unhealthy goal, then that can be a problem. Because these drugs boost dopamine everywhere in the brain, not just in the part of brain the brain that they need it to get them moving again.
0: So you already mentioned Parkinson's disease as uh, one influenced by uh, the dysregulation and uh, absence of a neurotransmitter. So what other brain disorders have this underlying condition of neurotransmitters?
1: Yeah, so Parkinson's is one of the kind of clearest. We know exactly what's going on. We know which neurotransmitter is missing and we know that we can replace it, albeit with side effects a lot of other um, brain conditions probably are linked to levels of neurotransmitters, but not in quite such a simple way. So, for example, there's this belief that depression is caused by low serotonin levels, which actually has very little direct evidence to back it up. The reason people think that is because antidepressant drugs, some of them boost the levels of serotonin available in the brain. So SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they block the cellular machinery that normally kind of sucks extra serotonin out of the synapse. So when it's released by that first um, neuron, it travels across and gets detected by the second neuron. But any kind of extra that's swilling around in there normally gets hoovered up by that first neuron where it can be reused. So SSRIs block that hoover. So the serotonin ends up kind of sitting around in the synapse for longer, and it's more likely to bind to the second neuron and cause knock-on effects. So the the logic goes that if someone is depressed and then you give them a drug that increases the level of, uh, of serotonin available, that makes them feel better, then that must mean that they had low serotonin to begin with. But that's not necessarily true. So if you had a headache and you took a paracetamol and your headache got better, that doesn't mean that your headache was caused by a lack of paracetamol. It might be doing something that has an impact without that being the actual reason. Um, And there have been some studies that have tried to look at exactly what's going on in the brain that means SSRIs have this antidepressant effect, but we don't actually know how they have their benefit. And the other interesting piece of the puzzle is, well, there's two kind of points that don't make sense if it's just a case of low serotonin. One is that SSRIs don't work on everyone. About, I think it's about a third of people don't respond to SSRIs, whereas they have the blocking effect in everyone. So why, if it's low serotonin and we've boosted their serotonin, why do so many people not feel better when they've taken SSRIs? The other thing is that they take about six weeks to start working, whereas they block the receptors, the um, uh, uptake, uh, reuptake inhibitors, sorry, whereas they block the reuptake basically straight away. So if it were a case of low serotonin, you'd think that people would start to feel better immediately. So why do they take so long to start working? And scientists are still trying to figure out why that is. There's a few different reasons. Um, There's a few ideas that I go into in the book about uh, how it might be having knock-on effects on other receptors kind of further down the line or changing the growth of new neurons or possibly having more of a psychological effect that the increase in serotonin changes the way you process information but that that takes a while to actually make you feel better but basically we don't know how these drugs work despite them being so commonly used and despite the fact that they do work so it's definitely not not as simple as just boosting serotonin will make you happy.
0: So it looks like that we need to look into the mechanisms of the action a little bit uh, closer, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. And there is lots of research going on in this area. But again, it's quite difficult research to do, particularly in humans, because we can't just kind of look inside someone's brain and see what's happening when they're taking SSRIs. It's not that simple. Um, so you have to think of different ways to do these bits of research. Um But there is some really interesting research going on. So one of the pieces that I talk about in the book was by Catherine Harmer at Oxford University. And she's been using brain scans and eye tracking to look at how people's behavior changes after they take SSRI drugs. And she's finding that it almost immediately starts changing the way people process information. So we know that people who are, experiencing depression, tend to spend more time focusing on negative things in the environment and less time focusing on positive compared to people who aren't experiencing depression. So they will spend more time looking at sad faces if presented with a range of facial expressions. They'll be more likely to remember negative words rather than positive words when asked to remember a list of words. So she was looking at how that kind of behavior changed. And she found that After they were given a dose, just a single dose of SSRI, some of our participants started showing behaviors more like people who don't have depression, even though they were still feeling depressed at that time. And those Mm. were the people who six weeks later would go on to start feeling better. The people who weren't going to respond to that SSRI, who'd still feel depressed after six weeks didn't show this change in behaviour after one dose. So that's really exciting because at the moment, if you go to the doctor and get diagnosed with depression, they will give you a drug to try. You will have to wait six weeks to see if it works, and if it doesn't, you'll get a second drug to try And then you wait another six weeks and see if it works. And then you get a third one to try. So if you don't respond to the first few, it can be a really long time before you're on something that's effective for you. But if we could give people a brain scan or give them a test of whether this uh, way they're processing the world has changed after their first dose, and we could find out whether they're going to respond or not, we could get them onto a new drug within a few days. And that would cut down that wait time dramatically. And I think would really, really benefit patients.
0: This is super interesting, uh, where we can start using um, actual tests uh, for people with uh, brain disorders, for example. So what kind of approaches are there?
1: Yeah, see, that's the problem. It's really difficult to. So I um, You can test the levels of neurotransmitters in, say, the spinal fluid, but that requires a spinal tap, which is a painful and invasive procedure. And we don't actually know how the levels of, um, say, metabolites, so broken down um, bits of neurotransmitters in the spinal cord, how that links to levels in the brain. So pretty Mm. much everything we know about neurotransmitters in the brain has come from indirect methods so if we boost if we give someone a drug that we know increases dopamine how does that change their behavior or it comes from animal studies where you can look a bit closer or you can look at receptors if you look at post-mortem brains for example Um, but it's really really difficult to study levels of neurotransmitters in the brain of a living person um, which is one of the big problems with these studies and why there is so much work still to be done
0: Oh, yeah, that is a lot of work, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely,
1: yeah. I think I was, I knew that this was going to be a complicated topic, but I was really surprised when I started researching it how much there is that we still don't understand about the, the systems that make up our brain. And I'd be reading papers, and I'd find two papers that gave completely opposing views of what a chemical did. And then you, you kind of boil it down. And one of them was looking at one type of receptor in a tiny part of the brain. And another one was looking at a different receptor in a part just just across from that first part. And they're getting completely opposite results. So it's, it's a really complicated system. And we're basically only just scratching the surface of it.
0: So have you come across uh, successful therapies that uh, are targeting the neurotransmitters?
1: Well, I mean, despite the fact that we don't know how they work, SSRIs work really well in a good proportion of people um, with depression. They were discovered by accident and we don't know how, but they do seem to work. Um, so yeah, everything that I say about how much more there is to learn about these mechanisms, that doesn't mean that the drugs we have aren't good, um, if that makes sense. I am mm. I think there's a lot of room in the future for perhaps more targeted drugs. Um, it's, it's really difficult to target drugs to different parts of the brain, but it's something that I think will start to come out, maybe not in the next 10 years, but maybe in the next 50 years as research improves. Um, we'll find ways to deliver drugs just to the area perhaps where they're needed. And I think that would be an absolute game changer when it comes to treating brain disorders because a lot of the reasons we get side effects from drugs is because they affect the whole brain. Because so we have to give them in the blood... Um, They have to travel through what's called the blood brain barrier, which uh, is a kind of membrane that stops various things getting into the fluid that feeds the brain. Um, And actually even getting drugs across that is quite difficult because it blocks quite a lot of molecules. Um, But then they go everywhere in the brain. So I think there is some research starting to be done on how we could create drugs that we could target to just particular regions or particular networks in the brain. Um, And I think that would be really exciting um, and might be, yeah, might be a big game changer, but
0: it's a bit of a way away. A bit more research is needed before we can do that. So thinking about the bigger picture, so in what ways the thinking about the brain chemistry is shaped by economic and social forces of the day?
1: Yeah, I think that there's definitely the media picks up little nuggets of science that it then starts translating, and I I, com- I have so much sympathy for people who write articles and write headlines because I've I've done that, and it's really difficult to distill complex science into a. 300 word article and then distill it even further into a five word headline. So, you know, I have so much, I I completely understand why news outlets end up going with, you know, dopamine is addictive or whatever they go with. What I get really cross about is the people who then use that to try and sell you stuff. So the people who are claiming that they can... Test the levels of your neurotransmitters by you spitting into a tube and sending it to them, and then they can give you supplements to balance your neurotransmitters and improve your mood or focus or whatever. Um, people who sell things like that, I think it's really disingenuous and they're just using scientific terms to make what they do seem better than it is. Um, And I'm not saying that there aren't supplements, foods, herbs, whatever that might boost your mood or um, improve your health. But you have to be really careful because supplements aren't regulated in the same way that drugs are, and they can have significant side effects. They can interact with other drugs. So St. John's Wort, for example, is a natural remedy that can be effective in some people for depression, but it also interacts with certain medications. I think it might be heart medications, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, So people think that just because something is natural, it's necessarily safe. And that's definitely not true. Um, And because they're not regulated, you also don't know if what the person is selling you has what it says it has in it. So I think we have to be really careful as consumers not to get sucked in by sexy sounding neuroscience stuff that makes these big claims when actually the science is is really in its infancy. Um, and yeah, I think we just, we have to be really careful about that. And I do get quite cross when I see people claiming that they can balance your neurotransmitters or whatever, because what what even does that mean? And and certainly you Mm. don't want to just be boosting things indiscriminately, because one thing that came up time and time again is that low levels of a neurotransmitter can cause problems, but too much of it can also cause problems. So low serotonin perhaps (laughs) is linked to depression, but high levels of serotonin have been linked to anxiety. So, just boosting it isn't necessarily going to be the right thing to do in every person, even if you could do it. So, we need to be really careful. And I think, um, as another hope in the future, alongside targeted medicine, is more personalized medicine where we would um, maybe there'd be a way to detect whether we are low or high in something. I don't know how that would be at the moment, but certainly this idea that we're all different and we all need different maybe need different types of treatment. Perhaps, say for depression, it may be that there are different underlying causes in different people. So maybe some people are um, low in serotonin, but maybe others have high levels of inflammation in the body and that's causing their depression, or maybe there's another factor um, that's involved. So I think the more we understand about these conditions, the more we'll be able to personalize and target treatments.
0: And that presumably will have quite big implications for the public health as well if we can really narrow down um specific diseases to specific uh, d- disbalance perhaps of neurotransmitters,
1: yeah, I hope so. I think I do think that we're starting to um kind of realize that. It's not one size fits all, particularly when it comes to the brain. Um, Each of our brains is different at birth from we've all got slightly different DNA that builds slightly different brains. But our brains are also changing throughout our lives in a way that our other organs don't. So your experiences throughout your life shape your brain and change it. So even two identical twins who have grown up in the same environment, their brains will still be slightly different because they'll have had slightly different experiences. And I think that's why for a lot of mental health conditions in particular, we need sort of two-pronged attack. We need the the drug treatments are often very effective, but they're often best work best when they're paired with say cognitive behavioral therapy that comes at it from the other angle and that teaches you to think in a different way or to respond in a different way to your environment and coming at the brain kind of from both angles bottom up and top down um, as as we tend to say in neuroscience uh, can be the most effective thing to do at the moment and I think that personalization is is going to be increasingly important going forwards.
0: So what discoveries along your journey to writing Overloaded surprised you the most?
1: Oh gosh, there were so many. Um, So, oh, I really liked the pain chapter. Um, I found really interesting because I didn't know a huge amount about the biology sort of of the body from the neck down, if that makes sense. I I knew about the brain, um, but the rest of the body I didn't know as much about. So it was really interesting learning about the fact that we have a system that carries pain signals from our skin or our organs to our brain, obviously. There's also a system going in the opposite direction that allows the brain to block incoming pain signals and that's why you can get Feats where, for example, a soldier w- walks for hours on a broken leg because they had to get away from danger, or a parent lifts a car off their child to save them. Because when mm. you're under extreme stress, your brain activates this descending pathway, which releases chemicals into your spinal cord that block the pain signals from coming back up. So you literally don't feel the pain of that broken leg. Until you've reached safety, because the brain has said, no, getting out of this situation is more important than protecting the ankle. Um, So, there are scientists who are now looking at ways of activating this descending pathway to treat pain. Um, And you can do that by putting the chemicals in it. So, uh, rather than relying on the brain to release chemicals in the spinal cord, you can inject chemicals there which you know not great for just a little headache but for people who experience chronic pain might be quite um, a good treatment better perhaps than giving them uh pills that then go through their bloodstream and cause lots of side effects. You can also activate it by stimulating the area of the brain that is in control of it. So it's an area called the periaqueductal gray or PAG. And if you put electrical stimulation into that part of the brain, you can activate the descending pathway and block incoming pain signals. If the pain is less dramatic than that and you don't want to inject things into your spine or stimulate your brain it turns out you can also activate it by swearing (laughs) Um, so in a more minor way but if you ever stub your toe and then swear that might actually be reducing the amount of pain that you're feeling so there's a researcher called Richard Stevens who's done work on this and he can't go around getting people to stub their toe because that wouldn't be ethical. So what he does is he asks them to put their hands in iced water and see how long they can keep them there. Um, And that's uncomfortable. uh, But after a while, it becomes quite painful. So he did a study where he had people put their hands in iced water. And in one scenario, they had to shout whatever swear word they would normally use when they hurt themselves. And in another scenario, he asked them for a word that you'd use to describe a table. And then they had to just say that word over and over again while they had their hand in the iced water. So one scenario, they're swearing, the other one, they're saying a word that describes a table. And he found that they could keep their hand in the iced water for longer in the condition where they were swearing than when they were saying another word. Um, And it didn't work when he made up words that sounded a bit like swear words Hmm. Uh, so it wasn't just something to do with swear words having particular sounds to them they had to be a word that is a bit naughty um, that makes you feel like you shouldn't really be doing it because what he thinks is that doing something you shouldn't activates this stress system slightly kicking in this descending pathway and blocking those pain signals a little bit oh boy now i know what
0: to do when i stub my toe (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yep, exactly. As long as you're not on the
0: radio. <sighs> well, that's true. So what is your favorite myth or wife's tale about a neurotransmitter? Ooh,
1: well, so we've already covered the serotonin makes you happy and the dopamine is addictive one.
0: Have- what about cortisol? Does it always make you happy or...?
1: So cortisol is often known as the stress hormone, Um, hormone because it's released in your body, um, because it is released when we experience long-term stress. Um, I guess there is a sort of protective effect of cortisol, um, which maybe goes against that idea. It is released in response to stress, but it isn't necessarily always a bad thing. Um, Mm. So in the short term it does lots of things to your body that will help you deal with that stress. It's the same with adrenaline. Um, Adrenaline's released and then a little bit later cortisol is released and they change your body in a way that you can deal with whatever it is that's stressing you out. So run away from it, fight it, um, perhaps freeze and hide from it. And that's what we call the fight or flight response. Uh, Cortisol has a slightly more prolonged effect than adrenaline. Um, But it often gets a bad rep because if you have prolonged release of cortisol, then it can start having negative effects. So, for example, um, one of the things cortisol does is it sort of dials down unimportant things that aren't going to help you with survival if there's a bear in front of you so that you can use all of your energy on surviving. But one of the things that it dials down is the immune system. Because if you're fighting a bear, then then having a really active immune system In that moment, doesn't really make a difference. And it's better that your body focuses on fighting the bear. But that means that if you have prolonged release of cortisol over weeks or months, it can weaken your immune system um, and you can become more susceptible to colds and other viruses, which, particularly at the moment, is not ideal, considering lots of us are quite stressed about the fact that there's a pandemic. And then being stressed about the pandemic might actually make us more susceptible to the virus is a kind of um, rather horrendous irony. Um, So I think, yes, I guess there is a bit of a misconception there that cortisol is always a bad thing, whereas actually short, sharp bursts of it, which is what our body has evolved for, are oh, good. They've evolved, it's evolved to help us, to protect us in those moments against those danger signals, which in our evolutionary history would be probably something trying to attack us, which is likely to be a short-lived thing. The problem is we now live in a world where the things that stress, our, stress us out are long-term issues. So it's money problems or a horrible boss at work or a global pandemic that goes on for mm. two years. Um, so that, kind of long-term release of cortisol can have negative knock-on effects on the body because it's not what our bodies
0: were evolved for. So you already said that uh, you can't really pick your favorite neurotransmitter and uh, all of them are really cool structures chemically, aren't they? So which structure do you think you like the most?
1: Ah, so I, um, I, Well, so some of them are quite small and quite simple. So dopamine and serotonin are quite nice little kind of structures. Uh, Oxytocin and vasopressin are much bigger, chunkier ones. Um, I actually have a bit of a thing about neuroscience fashion. So I have quite a collection now of neurotransmitter earrings and necklaces and neuron patterned dresses. Um, I actually for the release of my book, I bought myself a top with a bunch of different chemical um, chemicals featured in the book on it. So it's got. I didn't put oxytocin on just because it's so big, but it's got dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, GABA, glutamate, um, all in the same colours that are on my book cover, um, covering my top. And yes, I have. I also bought myself a, a, neuron, a neurotransmitter charm bracelet from this lovely company called Made with Molecules who do beautiful molecular jewellery. Um, yeah, they do lots of neurotransmitters. They also do things like um, the chemical constituents of various foods. So you can have like chocolate earrings or red wine necklace or whatever if you're not a neuroscientist. So yes. Um, oh, I still didn't pick a favourite, did I? But they're all great. Oh, I love it! All
0: this uh, sciency fashion is brilliant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it's it's great. There's not. It's a lot easier to find it if you're into space. I've discovered there's loads of space dresses out there. So my friends who are um, astrophysicists have a lot bigger selection. Uh, but I've managed to track down a couple of different neuron and um, brainy type patterns so far. <laughs>
0: So we've taken up a lot of your time and could you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Yeah, so I've been putting a lot of my time recently into Braintastic Science, which is uh, my where I kind of do stuff for younger people. So we do stage shows at events and festivals now that they're starting to happen again. Um, we also go into schools and do shows and workshops and things all around the brain all about the brain in various ways. So we've got a a really interactive show about the senses, which is packed with demos and illusions and things, which is usually for primary school. So sort of age seven to 13 or something. Um, And then we have shows for uh, older students on the kind of basics of neuroscience, how neurons communicate, what neurotransmitters are, that kind of thing. We have one on memory and learning um, with lots of revision tips, but also what's going on in the brain that makes them true. Um, And Yeah, so I've been putting quite a lot of time into that at the moment. I've got two wonderful presenters because I'm based in Singapore at the moment, but I have two wonderful presenters in the UK who are doing the in-person shows and then I've been doing lots of the online ones. Um, I'm also working on a book proposal for a kid's book. So hopefully that will be the next writing project. Um, And the other thing that I'm spending a bit more of my time at the moment doing is training other scientists in how to find the stories in their research and communicate what they do better because I love talking to the public about um, neuroscience, about the brain, about psychology. But I think that... If we can get more scientists confident in talking about what they do in a way that everyone can understand, I think that's going to be of a huge benefit. So I do um, some training courses. I go into universities and institutions and it's all about storytelling and finding the stories within your research So I help them uh, work through what they do and where they might find a story in it and how they can tell that with confidence. Um, And I've also recently converted it into an Udemy course online. So I realized that I wasn't reaching as many scientists as I wanted to because not everyone has an institution that brings in trainers. So it's now up as an Udemy course so that anyone who wants to learn about storytelling um, and communicating their science can just find it online um and for a small charge can do the AI. it's pre-recorded lectures and activities and I log on and give feedback and things but it's all do it in your own time so yeah so those are kind of my main projects at the moment
0: no that sounds super exciting <laughs> and where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book
1: so, my the stuff that I do for grown-ups, so overloaded and the training and my other kind of writing, and I do some TV presenting, that kind of thing, is all on my personal website, which is GinnySmithScience.com um, And I'm at Ginny Smith Sci on Twitter and Instagram and all the socials. And then the stuff I do for young people is braintasticscience.com, like fantastic, but with Brain at the beginning or at Braintastic Psy. And Overloaded should be available in all the usual places. You'd find it online. Probably the easiest thing to do is just Google Overloaded Ginny Smith or search for it at your favorite retailer. There's also some signed copies available from the Cosmic Shambles Network, who I do a lot of work with, um, both live events, um, online events, and I have a blog on their website. Uh, So if you want one of the few signed copies, you can go to the Cosmic Shambles Network bookshop. And there's also signed copies from lots of other
0: great science authors, which make great presents. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this stimulating discussion.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great chatting.